Healthcare Now, paid for by Integrated Physician Network. This program is recorded to air at this time. Healthcare premiums through the roof. So much to think about when it comes to health care. Who do you talk to? Where do you go next? Well, we've got your answer to navigating the healthcare world. Welcome to Healthcare Now with hosts Mark Chayette and Larry Jones. And now let's head into the Healthcare Now studios. Welcome to Healthcare Now, and thank you for joining us this Saturday afternoon to discuss the healthcare issues that affect you. Larry Jones. How are you doing, Larry? I'm doing well, Doctor Mark. I'm doing it. Uh, yeah. I'm doing pretty well yeah. too. I yeah. think we're going to have what a, a great beautiful show today. afternoon. It's a great day. Yep. It's been a it's been an interesting week. It's always nice to get we, to the weekend. We've got a lot to talk about. No, we do, and uh, we've got some. Uh, oh yeah, I don't. I don't even want to. No spoilers on this, but let's let's jump into some of the uh, the COVID chat of the okay. week. Okay. Now I think that the on the vaccine side, there's a couple of a uh, couple of things. The FDA is is pretty close to granting. Uh, COVID, uh, yep. I'm sorry, the COVID vaccine approval for Pfizer. Right. So for, for full approval. So right. we've been on this emergency status. A lot of folks out there get the feedback that they don't want to get the vaccine until that goes away. Until it's fully approved. You know, yeah. and it's kind of interesting, like when you talk to folks about that, it's that they're worried that this was a rush job, that it right. rushed it through. Well, when you listen to the news today, they're talking about the full approval being not well, a rush job, but they're trying to get it done quickly, yeah. which is what they did the first time. So well, I'm, according I'm to the New it. York Times, the drop dead date for this approval is Labor Day. Labor Day on Pfizer. Okay, because the, the emergency thing will right. will wear. Yeah, that's uh, right. That will expire. So that would be a great timing if right. we can get that done by then. And so for Moderna, they too have requested this, but I haven't heard any any further news on the Moderna. Haven't seen anything yeah. on that one, no. And then uh, the only news on the uh, Johnson & Johnson is CVS pharmacies. Some of their minute yep. clinics will, but their yep. pharmacies will no longer be having the J&J vaccine. Yep. They'll still have Moderna. They'll still have Pfizer. And I guess their statement was that those those were more effective vaccines. Yeah, they're saying that uh, they dropped all the shots except for some of their minute clinic retail locations mm-hmm. and that the J&J shot will only be available in about 10 percent of their CVS locations. Right. But that still includes a thousand locations in 25 states and right. so D.C. It's still there. It's still around. Washington, D.C. So we're not they're not. Yeah. I'm sure they have they have a stock stockpile of it as well. But, you know, the statement from CVS says, uh, we remain committed to helping in this deadly pandemic as quickly as possible. And the single shot vaccine that provides protection and prevents hospitalization and death is an important tool. Right, right. So well, I thought that was interesting. And, and I think nationwide, we're still seeing an increase in vaccination. Yes. Um, and I think if people ask me quite often, like, well, why do you think that's happening? On the one side is, I don't really care why so long as it is that's right but on the other side people are getting more information about these increased hospitalizations mm-hmm. that's right i'm just looking through the window and our, mm-hmm. our our engineer gabe he got his vaccine today excellent i mean you yeah. know we wouldn't even let him in the place if we didn't know he had it before but now we know yeah. that he's got it and he's got that's his first right. vaccine in. i think i promised him lunch or dinner if he'd do that too so yeah. i'm probably on the hook okay good 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 now oh yeah oh no he wants new air, new headphones new headphones oh, okay. okay yep that's <laughs> so we actually we're getting a shopping list for them going on but but yeah, so it's pretty that's a positive thing not so positive uh locally here we still have one of our uh, major hospitals at its highest level of concern yep. um we've got uh yep. peak levels of admissions but uh, you know going back to the vaccines mm-hmm. they were going county by county at the increase in the vaccines over the last couple of weeks in orange county 
had a 25% increase in vaccinations. I thought that was exceptional. They reopened their sites and they're actually going to start giving them at the, uh, at the, Camping, camping world, camp world, camp, yeah, camping, camping world. world. Yeah, camping they world. did open that back up. Yep. Yeah. So, so they're, well, they think that, that that's going to put the throughput a little yep. bit better right now. Uh, I forget the park that they were doing it in before they were also doing testing and it was just getting a little difficult for people to make, make their appointments or just to wait in line. Yeah. You know, uh, we talk about uh, getting people vaccinated, and we've talked about some of the employers requiring vaccination. Did you see the uh, article about the Northwest Florida Hospital employees? I did. In Sacred Heart that are actually protesting the vaccine policy, uh, and this is a Catholic hospital. You know, that's my hometown. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. I actually worked... uh, Mm-hmm. I, I, I was in that hospital a number of times for different purposes. It's an ex- excellent hospital. Yeah. Um, it is it's part of the Ascension plan, which is right, relatively right. new. Well, they're in, saying in that, that yes, the Ascension Sacred Heart, mm-hmm. but they announced it, but saying that everyone has to be vaccinated by November 12th. Right. And so one of the arguments is like everyone has to be vaccinated for the flu shot. And, yeah. and so this is we're going to see this more and more because, you know, government agencies have already done it. Uh, lots of businesses are going that route. And, right. you know, I think it's well, going to, you know, as a physician, Dr. Mark, you must feel strong about if you're going to take care of patients, you need to be vaccinated. You do. And this is this goes back to the age old argument, uh, at least as old as America, that uh, mandates are difficult things to swallow. And yeah. and you you would hope that the healthcare folks would just want to get vaccinated. But at some point, uh, the, these yeah. groups feel like there's a level of responsibility to their patients. Right. Well, I think uh, so one that, of the decisions sense. that that Ascension Sacred Heart came is they indicated that 95% of all COVID patients that are in the hospital right now are unvaccinated. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and that's, we're seeing between 90 and 95 U.S.-wide are unvaccinated yeah. folks. And that uh, that we're seeing that most of these are, are 80% of those have the Delta variant. Sure. So, sure, I mean, I think... We're going to see more and more of this. I think we will, because... Yeah. I, well, I wanted to kind of jump into that that piece, too, when we talk about the okay. variants. yeah. So, we, we've got the Delta variant, which is, I guess, the most famous of the variants. Yes. You know, there are more already out there. There's and, a Lambda variant right. that came out of Peru mm-hmm. in South America. And so, each one's going to have its own characteristics, yeah. and talking about those characteristics prematurely doesn't really help. And what what I'm hearing from friends and folks at the gym and whatnot is like, well, this Delta variant, it's not as deadly. Now, that just isn't something we know. That's right. And it was very deadly Especially in India. Especially among unvaccinated. Well, uh, well that's, that's yeah. to be said. So, yeah. vac- yeah. Uh, you know, and no, nobody has seen any large number of deaths in vaccinated folks. That's right. Just period with that's any right. any variant. So that's we're right. going to stay there. But there's not a reason why the Delta variant would be less virile, would be less dangerous, right? So if we just look at everybody who's getting it now, the, well, the we early death more reports, infectious. Right, yep. right. But this is, the, that's, that's again, that's a given. Everybody seems to buy right. that. Right. But, but I'm hearing this, it's not as deadly. And there's just no data that we don't have the number of deaths with this variant yet for two reasons. One, we're still early in that bump. And typically... People don't come to the hospital with their COVID infection and immediately die. It does happen, but typically they're hospitalized and they're put on ventilators in the ICU and it takes yep. a while. That's number one. Number two, right. not everyone is testing for the Delta variant. That's so right. they're talking about deaths that are confirmed with Delta variant, not about they, they know if the death is a death. And you remember, if you think further back, the conspiracy theory was that even the deaths 
of COVID patients weren't accurate numbers. Right. And so you, you kind of heard that kind of stuff oh, going yeah. on. So, well, there were some examples of not only testing for positives, but also the deaths that were not accurate. Right. So, yeah. so I, I don't want people to get overconfident that, oh, yeah, yeah, it's easier to get Delta, but harder to die from, because we just don't know that. I, I personally, right. it, it wouldn't make any sense that that's how that happens. I would right? never say that. And, and then don't base your decision on this vaccine on Alpha and Delta and the things that we know about, because there's more variants out there. So far, each variant that has been tested by the companies that have vaccines show that the vaccines are active exactly. against those variants. Yep. So that's an important that's piece. Right. I, Very I important. But that was that was my soapbox on, you know, one of those answers that that no, it's not it's not as deadly. Sure. Now, when it goes back to what about what about mask wearing? I mean, that's been the other oh, huge, this, huge topic. What a huge political football right now. That's crazy. And it's crazy. as you know, school started this past week. Uh-huh. There have been four days of school, mm-hmm. Tuesday through Friday. Right. And uh, we can kind of go through the list. But yeah. I think the major schools have mandated the yes. masks, but you can opt out if your parent sends a letter in. Right. So this all started um, from, you know, our governor kind of said, no mask mandates. Right. Right. And then in South Florida, I think it was Broward County. He's going after up. Broward County, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I think he'll probably step away from that. I think he will. And I think Orange County, which is another very large county here, went to a mask mandate just, you know, yep. a couple of days before school started. They announced yep. that. I, I think, think it was the latest days. on the executive order, and I agree with you, he may back off of that a little bit. But I think the the main thing he wants, and I'm this is my interpretation, is that if you mandate you have to have an opt out. Right, right. And if you do, I think Tallahassee and the governor is okay with that. Right. And I you know, when you look at the whys, okay, there's some that say, well the mask doesn't help, so why are we doing it? I right. I don't really agree with that. It's an airborne disease. Absolutely. And and certainly it's going to bring a percentage of cases down. Number two, how does this affect the kids? And there's lots of I mean it it's all thoughts of and philosophy and people that guess and then, you know, we'll we'll figure all that out, right? Well, the next piece that I'm concerned about is if you don't have a mask mandate and you have a child whose mom and dad say, yeah, you're wearing your mask, does that kid get picked on or vice versa, right? Why aren't you wearing a mask? Why are you wearing a mask? So if there's not a rule that the school follows, then there's going to yep. be outliers. They're going to be picked on. And I'm a little concerned about that. This opt-out piece is pretty good in that it requires an action. So right. they can't just say we're that's opting right. out. They that's actually right. have to apply. Have to write say, a letter. Yep. So yeah. so that's going to have more people say, well, too much trouble. Just we're, we'll just wear your mask. And, but and you know, Doctor Mark, we were talking about this before we aired uh, the peer pressure yeah. bullying component yeah. of this thing. Right. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Well, I mean, th- and again, we're just guessing. We don't know. Right. Right. But right. it makes sense because same same. Idea Maybe with, more so in middle and high school than in elementary school. Well, I, again, yeah. I don't think we can really say that yeah. because when we look at schools that, let's say they have a uniform policy. Yeah. Right. So that's mm-hmm. that's why many of the schools have a uniform policy. So some kids don't get picked on because they're yeah, wearing the shoes. Most all private schools yeah. do and so, some public, uh, some public schools. schools. Yeah. yeah. And so that was the idea behind that is this would decrease that that sort of bullying that peer pressure, pressure and saying, you know, yep. Well, yep. What, why are you dressed right. like that? So I think the mask becomes that that next piece. Yep. And if we just say, you know, wear it if you want, don't if you don't, we're creating this division. Whereas if everybody's supposed to wear the mask, I mean, I I, I did. I listened to our governor say, what are the psychological aspects of a kindergartner having to wear a mask? I don't know. Does anybody know? I don't think so. I don't think so. And and maybe there is something. I don't want to belittle those possibilities. But but what I do know is 
with the Delta variant, we believe that unlike the Alpha variant, which which early on we said, okay, the kids are going to get sick and they're going to make grandma sick. Well, that really didn't happen much in the right. Alpha variant. In the Delta variant, it absolutely right. is. So so the yeah. the kindergartner does come home with it and does spread it to and the family members. And spread it members. to a, a vulnerable person. Yep, yep, yep. Well, you know, the, the other thing I think is people just have to decide. I respect the fact that people can have their own opinion. Of course. I think you do too, Dr. Mark. Of course I do, yeah. But the bottom line is you have to weigh the issue of why don't I want it? Am I afraid of the side effects of the shot? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, and and the uncertainty of the long term effect of the shot. Right. I believe those are the two things that people that say, and I'm not going to get the vaccination, are most concerned about. I think that that's what they answer in the polls. But I think the yep. overwhelming majority is soon to be the group that just doesn't want to be mandated. Exactly. I think that's that 14 to 18 percent of the thing that are saying you just can't tell me what to do. Right. Um, you well, know, you know, in this thing with these hospital I mean, employees, one nurse in the Sacred Heart made the comment, it's my body and I'll decide what I put in it. Right. No. And, and, and she made and, that and, comment. Right. And yeah. and when it comes to pretty much everything, but this is the for the public good. And there are certain things as healthcare professionals we are not allowed to do that others right. are allowed to right. do. And so, I mean, there are different standards that have to be measured and met, that had to be yep. met. Well, we're, we're getting tight on uh, yeah. closing out our first section. But uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes, Mark. The Integrated Independent Physicians Network, preserving and protecting the independent practice of medicine since 2015. Join the movement with us, ipnetworkflorida.com. Mark Chayot, MD, practicing pediatric surgeon since 1997, working with Central Florida's premier hospital systems and outpatient surgery centers, providing unparalleled patient care and leveraging the latest in medical, technology, and education, accepting all major insurance. 407-228-4774 or visit OrlandoPediatricSurgery.com. The Integrated Independent Physicians Network, preserving and protecting the independent practice of medicine since 2015. Join the movement with us, IPNetworkFlorida.com. Mark Chayot, MD, practicing pediatric surgeon since 1997, working with Central Florida's premier hospital systems and outpatient surgery centers, providing unparalleled patient care and leveraging the latest in medical, technology, and education, accepting all major insurance. 407-228-4774 or visit orlandopediatricsurgery.com. The Integrated Independent Physicians Network, preserving and protecting the independent practice of medicine since 2015. Join the movement with us, ipnetworkflorida.com. Welcome to Healthcare Now. Welcome back to Healthcare Now. Uh, Dr. Mark, we have with us today Dr. Pradip Gymnatis, uh, a founder and medical director of cardiovascular interventions and a cardiologist who has been practicing in Central Florida for over 31 years. Dr. Gymnatis is widely recognized for his skills in interventional cardiology, among others, and has been awarded Orlando Top Doctor by Orlando Magazine consecutively for over a decade. 
Welcome to the show, Dr. Jim Nottis. We are delighted to have you this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Now, we have been talking about this mm-hmm. for, for weeks, and uh, yeah. I mean, I just want to state that, that uh, both Larry and I are, are big fans, and we're also friends of yours. Yes. Um, so we're, uh, we're completely biased towards uh, everything that you do. We just, we just uh, <laughs> love talking to you. Uh, love, uh, I don't mind saying that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I've been, been to your clinic very recently, and, and I trust you uh, for, for yeah. my own care, and yeah. I, just, I just can't say enough great things, but... So today, what we want to do is talk a little bit about cardiology to help mm-hmm. educate our listeners, um, so common problems. But I also know that you have a, a real passion for overall wellness. And I, we don't, you know, in, on, in only uh, three quarters of an hour, we can't cover all of that. But right. I definitely want to have you step in and talk about that and talk yeah. about your practice. But, you know, so far, uh, Dr. Gymnotis, tell us a little bit about what an interventional cardiologist does and a little bit about your practice. Okay. So the interventional cardiologist basically goes into the coronary arteries and opens them up if there's a blockage in them. And this can be done in the setting of a heart attack because a heart attack is caused by a sudden complete blockage in your artery. So there's no flow going down that artery. So the interventional cardiologist takes a little wire, passes it into the artery, opens it up, leaves behind a stent perhaps, and uh, opens up the blockage. So in patients who are having a heart attack or patients who are having angina, which is you know chest pain, pressure in the chest, he opens up arteries. So he's mm-hmm. intervening. So that's what an interventional cardiologist does. And, and as we stated in the beginning, that's, that's one of the things that you do and in, in your practice, but what, what are some of the most common heart diseases that you see yeah. in the office today? So today, the most common things I'm seeing is basically symptoms of blockages in the arteries mm-hmm. because there's an epidemic of this going on, and these arteries are plugging up because of plaque formation inside them. So the patients are coming with angina, which is chest pain. They're coming because of weak heart muscles, and the commonest reason for weak heart muscle or heart failure is because the arteries are clogged up or the valves are leaking. So they're coming in for that reason. They're also coming in to see me because of high blood pressure. They see me because of blocked arteries in the legs or in the kidney arteries. They come to see me for advice for prevention because they may have high cholesterol or diabetes. And they're developing blocked arteries in all over the uh, circulation, whether it's the neck, the heart, the legs, because you know, the underlying cause. Well, is, what causes these plaque is, buildups, Dr. Gymnatis? So this is not completely understood, but we do know that it's caused by inflammation. And the question is really, where does this inflammation come from? Inflammation. So it's like a scab that's forming on the inside of the arteries. And when you read the textbooks, you don't really get a good idea of what's causing the scab in the first place. But we do know that if you have high blood pressure, if you have diabetes, and certain types of high cholesterol levels, sleep apnea, toxicities, then obesity, you are more likely to develop these blocked arteries. So we don't really know the cause. Right, but you, but I think we've come a long way from it used to be. Well, you know what? If you just take care of that cholesterol, you're going to be fine, and and that's just not that's not the reality, is it? No, in fact, I did my 
big talk on the big fat lies where I clearly go over the de- mm-hmm. the details that fats do not cause the blockages in the coronary arteries. The biggest problem is blood sugar and insulin. Insulin is probably the largest culprit. And if there's anything new that's come out in the last 10 years, it is the fact that it is insulin that causes hardening of the arteries and the plaque formation. So elevated levels of, a, of an insulin for not a good reason. Exactly. And today, you go to a family doctor or any doctor, they're not going to measure your insulin No, they're not. No. Well, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that, Dr. Yeah. Gymnatis, because other than a routine annual wellness visit where they do an EKG, this isn't picked up on that, right? No. Absolutely not. You see, the routine examination is an EKG, a blood pressure check, a blood sugar check, a hemoglobin A1C check, and say, oh, well, you know, you're not diabetic. Right. But what I have learned over the last 15 years that you don't have to be a diabetic. You're actually a pre-diabetic where it's taking a whole lot of insulin in your body production to keep that sugar under control. And that's what's really hurting your arteries. So really, the biggest elephant in the room is a high insulin level, and yet you have normal sugars or normal hemoglobin A1C. And if you miss this opportunity to bring that high insulin level down, through my methodologies that I can go over with you, you really miss the boat because it takes 10 years of pre-diabetes, high insulin levels, to actually then become a diabetic eventually when even the high insulin levels will not control the sugar anymore. And this understanding is the new paradigm. It's a huge breakthrough for physicians as well as patients. You know, we talk about the EKG. Tell our listening audience what an EKG shows you. And it usually shows you two things. One is the rhythm. So it can tell you whether you're in sinus or atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heart rhythm, or you're getting extra palpitations, extra heartbeats. And the second thing is the pattern. The pattern of the EKG can tell you whether you have high blood pressure, a previous heart attack, whether you have lack of circulation in portions of your heart muscle. So really, an EKG does give you good information. But let's say you have hardening of the arteries it will not show you any changes unless you then exercise the heart and put it under stress. And then you look at the EKG, you'll see new changes. So resting EKG is helpful, but it's the incomplete story. Well, I think, you know, with EKGs, one of the things I talk to friends and family about is when you get just a screening EKG at your primary care physician or at a clinic somewhere, the person reading it isn't Dr. Gymnatus. And I mean, I can look at an EKG and and in medical school, I learned about EKGs, but I am not capable of picking up a lot of things that you just mentioned, even though they may be there. And that's true of a lot of us, right? I mean, this is a, it's a specialty and that's just one of the many tools that you have. So I think that one of the disservices we've done to our patients is made them think, oh, I have a great heart. My EKG is fine. I get an EKG every year and they say it's fine. So, and you might have a 90% blockage somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to yeah. take I wanted to take a, just a second and ask you to plug, you talked about your big talks, your, your YouTube channel, because you have some fantastic talks, and I want the listeners to know how to reach those. Yeah. So basically, I, I'm on YouTube under two headings. One is my own name, and I have a channel for cardiovascular interventions under my own name, P. Gymnatis, and I have another one called Galen Foundation. 
which I established many, many years ago. It's a, it's a not-for-profit organization, and I talk for them. It's Galen, G-A-L-E-N, Foundation. Mm-hmm. So there are two YouTubes. So, but even if you just plug in my name, Gemnatus, they all crop up. Excellent. And they are Excellent. basically there to teach people about these very things that you just said, that your baseline EKG is not enough. Um, and just look, looking at your sugar level is not enough. And passing a stress test is not enough also because you can have a 70% blockage in your artery and yet pass a stress test because Poissel's law state that the flow in the cylinder is related to the fourth power of the radius. Oh, my God, that's so technical. <laughs> what that means? What that means is that you could be harboring a 50, 60, 70% blockage in one of your arteries and not even know that you exactly. have one, and you pass your stress test. Right, because right. it's still getting through. It's still getting through. So you're saying that usually the blockage has to get up to around 90 before you start having any symptoms? That's absolutely right. And the problem is that if you wait till then, in the meantime, the plaque can crack. And if it cracks, a blood clot forms in that artery at the site. And you now went from, let's say, a 50% blockage to a 100% blockage. So that is the biggest problem, that heart attacks are not caused by a progressive narrowing in the artery. Heart attacks are caused when a minor blockage which is not causing any problem at this time, suddenly cracks and a blood clot forms at that site and now you have no circulation. Now you went from climbing a mountain now to having chest pain with a heart attack. So let's just, And that is a revelation. That's something new. Right. And, and let's just sort of paint a, a picture on radio here. So we've got plumbing. We've got these arteries in our heart that's delivering oxygenated blood to the muscle. And this plaque is like plaster. And we get that flake of plaster that falls down, and that's that's the big event that brings us to the emergency room. Exactly. And you didn't even have a warning of that. Right. And I teach people how to find that warning, that passing a stress test is not good enough. That's your incomplete examination. What you're really doing, and I'm going to give the, cat, uh, cat, the, the, the whole story away here, what you <laughs> really need is a coronary calcium study. Right, right. And we're, and we're going to talk about that. I don't want to leave the insulin talk yet. Now, what about yeah. patients that are, because I, I do a lot of weight loss discussions with my families, and was, oh, I, don't, I only drink diet soda. And there's certainly been studies that for weight management, that's not the answer. How is the insulin level affected by like diet foods and diet sodas? Well, insulin is secreted because of glucose. Mm-hmm. We do know that. Right. But... There are studies to show that even a sweet taste on the tongue stimulates the hypothalamus, and then the hypothalamus causes the pancreas to produce insulin. So what happens is that your sugar doesn't actually go up, but because that insulin is secreted, you're going to be hungrier, you're going to eat more, and whatever you then do eat under the influence of that high insulin level, more of that is going to go into storage. So therefore, you're going to gain weight. So the diet drinks may fool you into thinking that, oh, my gosh, I'm not taking any calories in. But no, you become hungrier later on. You actually end up eating more. And when you do eat, everything goes into storage. So you gain weight. And and what about the caffeine factor, Dr. J? The caffeine. Caffeine is a mixed bag. Caffeine does make you uh, – uh, does make you – 
feel energetic, and but there's always a price to pay afterwards. You're going to feel that fatigue and tiredness that's going to come on a few hours later. But as far as insulin is concerned, it's quite neutral. Uh, caffeine doesn't affect ins- insulin, and it doesn't make you gain weight or lose weight. So it's, it's kind of neutral. Well, I'll tell you, I think, I think that gave a, uh, our listeners and myself a big sigh of relief. Great discussion. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, this has been great. We're, we're going to take a quick break and want to come back and talk about some other common heart ailments and just continue this conversation. Back in a moment. We'll be right back. The Integrated Independent Physicians Network preserving and protecting the independent practice of medicine since 2015. Join the movement with us, ipnetworkflorida.com. Mark Chayot, MD, practicing pediatric surgeon since 1997, working with Central Florida's premier hospital systems and outpatient surgery centers, providing unparalleled patient care and leveraging the latest in medical, technology, and education accepting all major insurance. 407-228-4774 or visit orlandopediatricsurgery.com. Well, we've got your answer to navigating the healthcare world. Welcome to Healthcare Now. Welcome back to Healthcare Now. We are having a great Saturday afternoon here speaking to a friend and colleague, Dr. Pradeep Jamnadas. Uh, cardiologist who we were just finished up. Uh, I don't, we just did some of the uh, the that best informative sessions for that all of us. I really appreciate having you here. You know, and our listeners are going to play this back over and over again in podcasts because there's a lot of free medical advice here. Yeah, there there really is, and then I hope that'll steer them to the uh, the the YouTube uh, with the Galen Foundation. That, that's G A L E N Foundation. Mm-hmm. Sounds like that might be the most direct way for them to uh, see some of the work that you've recorded. Sure. Well, Dr. Shimnatis, we wanted to talk about a couple of uh, cardiac issues that I think uh, that we've all known family and friends to have. Larry, you had yeah. you had a, a list, and let's let's yeah. play it. We'll yeah. play let's, Stump the let's Expert. Let's talk about AFib. Uh, I understand it's one of the most common types of arrhythmia, and it in, impacts four hundred and fifty thousand hospitalizations, and costs the healthcare industry over twenty six billion dollars a year. Can you explain what that is and, and the treatment options of that, Dr. Gymnatis? Sure, sure, absolutely. Atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is an irregular heartbeat where there is no rhyme or rhythm to it. And normally, the lub-dub of the heart sound, the first and the second sound, come because the electricity goes from the upper chambers, then goes to the lower chambers in a sequential fashion. In atrial fibrillation, this sequence from the upper to the lower chamber is lost, and the upper chamber has just gone crazy, and it's just totally irregular. Mm. And there's, therefore, when you take your pulse, you're going to get a totally irregular heartbeat. And this is catastrophic for a number of reasons. And uh, I'll dive into that right away because it causes strokes, of course, because when the upper chamber is not squeezing because there's no fundamental electrical pattern, then a blood clot forms in the upper chamber during the irregular heartbeat and that causes the stroke. And of course, the functioning of the heart is very inefficient because you don't get adequate filling in the sequential fashion. So therefore, that sequential fashion is lost, your cardiac output drops, and patients become short of breath, they can get chest pain, they can go into congestive heart failure. So stroke, congestive heart failure, 
chest pain are all consequences of this irregular, dramatically different heartbeat called atrial fib. Now, is that picked up on an EKG? How do you pick up AFib? So, yes, you can definitely diagnose it on a regular, plain, simple EKG because okay. that's the first reason we do an EKG is to look at the rhythm. So you'll find, and then, of course, patients can also present with symptoms of palpitations where they're feeling, oh, my God, my heart rate is very irregular. I feel palpitations or their pulse rate is really, really fast. And that's how we pick up atrial fibrillation. All right, so let's go back on that. So the, the upper portion of the heart, that's the, the that augments the filling of the lower portion of the heart that then pushes the blood out to the rest of their system. So we've lost that coordination. And what what are some of the symptoms that they might feel with that? From that alone, they're losing 20% of the pump function because the pump is not adequately primed by right. the upper chamber. So they will feel short of breath, mm-hmm. exercise intolerance, low blood pressure, fatigue and tiredness. Right. And is, These are the symptoms that they make it. And so they, if they note that, I mean, the hope would be they get evaluated and they avoid what would be the most common thing. Would that be stroke, the most common disaster? Yeah, the, the most catastrophic thing is a stroke. Mm-hmm. But remember now, atrial fib can be intermittent. So we use that big word called paroxysmal. So what that means is that you're feeling your palpitation, but you go to your doctor, he does an EKG, and the EKG looks normal. Mm. But what you need to now do is put an event monitor on the patient or a halter monitor for a substantial period of time to pick up the, the intermittent atrial fibrillation. So a lot of patients don't understand that these palpitations are not to be taken lightly. Because so, if you're feeling them, when you go to the doctor and you do the 12-lead EKG, the EKG may look normal. No, you need to be further evaluated. And nowadays, you can pick up atrial fibrillation with monitoring devices that you can use at home. And even the Apple Watch can actually tell you that I, you're in atrial fibrillation. I was just about to plug the Apple Watch there, but yep. you beat me to it. No, it's <laughs> and it's pretty, would you consider it's, I mean, I've looked at this and played around with it. It's It's pretty sensitive. Yes, it is. And new, we were very happy to find it because mm-hmm. yep. Yep. I mean, we do get a lot of calls about it, and sometimes it's not atrial fibrillation, but at least the awareness is getting out there because intermittent atrial fibrillation is an indication of a risk of a stroke just as much as constant atrial fibrillation. That's the takeaway point. And so what's, let's, let's walk through that plan. Let's say someone is diagnosed, they haven't had a stroke. What's next? They've not had a stroke. You've diagnosed them with intermittent atrial fibrillation or constant atrial fibrillation. Now, there are three parts to this equation. The first part is you need to protect them immediately from a stroke. So they need to be on a blood thinner, mm-hmm. an anticoagulant. So you do the evaluation for the safety. Is this patient an appropriate candidate to be placed on anticoagulation? So that's the very first thing, because no matter what, you've got to protect them from the stroke. Right. Then the second part is rate control. That means... Is this atrial fibrillation, when it happens, is the heart rate too fast, too slow? So you need medications. If it's going too fast, you need to slow them down. Mm-hmm. So you need to do what is known as rate control. Then the third part of the equation is rhythm control. That means you want to keep them in sinus rhythm. So there you need to find out the underlying cause of the atrial fibrillation. That is the most important part also. You need to work out, why is this patient doing this in the first place? And there's a list of causes of atrial fibrillation, which I can go over with you. 
you know, you mentioned Holter Monitor earlier, and, you know, we we have a lot of value-based programs within our IPN network, and one of the things that we're seeing more and more is remote patient monitoring, and that's kind of what you're talking about here, isn't it, Dr. Jim Nottis? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And more of it should be done because, you, look, any stroke is absolutely catastrophic. If you find atrial fibrillation, we all are very happy because now we can do something about it. We can prevent a stroke. First and foremost, anticoagulation, then weight control, and then work up the underlying cause of the atrial fibrillation so it doesn't get any more atrial fibrillation. And just, again, for the listener's sake, we, you mentioned this earlier, how the stroke occurs is since that upper chamber isn't squeezing the blood out in an organized fashion, blood sits and clots in that in those upper chambers. And so that's that's the so the anticoagulation makes it less likely for it to clot. That's absolutely right. See the upper chamber squeezes and all the blood empties into the lower chamber. But if it's not squeezing and it's just fibrillating, basically it's just sitting there as a big bag. The blood comes into the atrium and swirls around. Mm-hmm. And when blood doesn't move, it coagulates. And the largest pool of blood in the body is actually in the heart. It's just sitting there when in atrial fibrillation. Right. And then the blood clot forms against the wall and then takes off. Gotcha, gotcha. And then it lands up in the brain. And it causes a stroke. If it lands up in your kidney, you infarct your kidney. If it goes, lands up in your leg, you have no circulation in your leg. Wow. And that's a catastrophe also. So in the lung, right? Blood it could end up in the terrible. lung. Yep. Interesting. Yep. And so the anticoagulation, there's, there's a number of medications on the market. And is that, is that the doctor decides, the patient decides? How does that work? Yeah, it, it's, it's a joint decision because... Um, Certain anticoagulations, such as Coumadin, require blood tests, and they can interact with other medications as well as dietary changes. And then there are others that require no blood test and no dietary changes, So, but they are more expensive and they're only covered by some insurances. Mm-hmm. So the decision is made jointly between the physician and the patient as to which anticoagulant they're going to put the patient on. And if they're just not, uh, let's say they have a high risk of falling, and so anticoagulation might even be a, a different kind of danger, is there another option? If the patient is at risk of falls, I still anticoagulate them. But if they've definitely already had falls and injuries and, and sustained some broken bones, there you definitely don't want to give them more anticoagulation. In that option, we do have a, a device which is known as the Watchman, which is a small, it's like a little cage. And what it is is that we deploy it inside the upper chamber, and it acts like a sieve that prevents the blood clots from coming out of the left atrial appendage where they tend to form and prevents them from getting into the circulation. Mm-hmm. So it traps the blood clots in the left atrial appendage, and this this device is called a watchman. So we do deploy watchmans in patients who have absolute contraindications to the anticoagulation, but they are at risk of having a stroke or have already had a stroke. In that case, we deploy this device. Now, uh, once once that's been done, either either device or anticoagulation, I mean, are they always going to have atrial fibrillation, or is there a way to fix that? Right. So that brings you to to, to prevention of atrial fibrillation and working up the underlying cause. So 
you know, today the commonest cause of hypertension of uh, atrial fibrillation today is actually hypertension, high blood pressure. So just chronic high blood pressure. Chronic high blood pressure causes atrial fibrillation, which is incredibly and common. Then, very common. That you know, we're seeing an epidemic of atrial fibrillation now. When I went into practice, I did not see so much atrial fibrillation, and now I'm seeing so much atrial fibrillation. It's an epidemic of atrial fibrillation. And the commonest reason is metabolic syndrome. So this yeah. metabolic syndrome, of which high blood pressure is part of, causes atrial fibrillation. And then, of course, as a cardiologist, I look for other causes of atrial fibrillation, which are valvular disease, you know, leaky valves or stenotic valves like aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, mitral stenosis. Uh, cardiomyopathies, you know, weak hearts from heart attacks before, hardening of the arteries, thyroid disease. Yeah, we're going to actually talk about cardiomyopathy. That was one of my next questions. <laughs> yeah. So there are lots of reasons why the patient ha- can go into atrial fibrillation, but the commonest reason that I'm seeing them nowadays is metabolic syndrome. Because the, the patient who already has a low heart muscle function, a low ejection fraction, it's pretty obvious that he's going to be at risk of having atrial fibrillation. But these people that are coming into my office nowadays are regular people, younger, with normal heart function, and yet they're going into atrial fibrillation. And then I'm having to either, you know, eventually send them for ablation therapy, which is something I can tell you a little bit more about, or go on the medications and anticoagulation. It's it's a horrendous epidemic of atrophy today. Well, we're going to take a break in just a second, Dr. Jim Nottis. Hopefully you'll stay with us for a third segment. Sure, we'll do. And okay. when we come back, I want to ask you the question. I want to talk a little bit about cardiomyopathy and aortic valve stenosis, but also what differences are there in heart attacks among young people versus older people? We'll be right back. Integrated Independent Physicians Network, preserving and protecting the independent practice of medicine since 2015. Join the movement with us, ipnetworkflorida.com. Mark Chayot, MD, practicing pediatric surgeon since 1997, working with Central Florida's premier hospital systems and outpatient surgery centers, providing unparalleled patient care and leveraging the latest in medical, technology, and education, accepting all major insurance. 407-228-4774 or visit orlandopediatricsurgery.com. Welcome to Healthcare Now. Welcome back to Healthcare Now. We're talking with Dr. Pradip Gymnatis and Dr. Mark, my co-host. Dr. Gymnatis, you were talking about metabolic syndrome. You want to follow up on that a little bit? Sure. So metabolic syndrome, again, an explosion of it going around us. Metabolic syndrome is defined as high blood pressure, low HDL, which is your good cholesterol, then your triglyceride level, high, high triglyceride level, then borderline diabetes, so you have slightly elevated sugars, slightly elevated hemoglobin A1C, 
then you have obesity, increased abdominal girth, so the waistline is where all the weight is. And this syndrome is called metabolic syndrome. And right now, two-thirds of the U.S. population can be defined as having metabolic syndrome. Oh, uh, say that again. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of the population. Unbelievable. Two-thirds. And, and well, it's, I, it's I across age groups, right? Yeah, it's across age groups. Yes, all across all age groups. I cannot overemphasize that this is starting in adolescence, and this, folks, this is going to bankrupt the system and destroy health care. Yes. We have to stop metabolic syndrome. Wow. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, I had to, I had to emphasize that because that's an, an un, unbelievable number. It's incredible. Oh, I don't believe it myself, but I look around and I see it. So what's happening is that what's the cause of this metabolic syndrome? And in a nutshell, what's happening is that the food that we're eating is creating high insulin levels in our body because of a condition called insulin resistance. Under the influence of insulin, we are developing this big abdominal girth, weight is going up, we're getting fatty liver, and then further insulin resistance, fat deposition into our pancreas, and then into the muscles, and then we get resistance at the level of the muscles, high blood pressure, low HDL, plaque formation in the arteries, all over your body, your arteries just get paralyzed, they can't vasodilate anymore, and that's why you get high blood pressure, by the way. Insulin paralyzes your blood vessels, they can't dilate, and that's why you get high blood pressure. So high blood pressure, what you and I were taught in med school was that it's idiopathic. It's not. It's due to metabolic syndrome. Hmm. And that's the breakthrough that I have seen in the last 20 years, that patients come to me with high blood pressure, I'm finding that they have metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. I chase metabolic syndrome through my dietary changes, and behold, the blood pressure's gone, the weight comes down, the insulin levels come down, they don't get heart attacks and strokes and dementia. You know, we we manage um, thousands of value-based patients on all of our programs, and I can't remember the last patient that I looked at that didn't have high blood pressure. Right, right. And so if you put that together with some of these other findings. Yeah, with other comorbidities. Yeah. Incredible. Well, talk, talk a little bit more about that. How, how does the anti-inflammatory portion of the diet come into play here and some of the other things that you've been advising your patients to do? Yeah. So basically, it's the sugars and the carbohydrates that constantly stimulate your insulin production. And therefore, your insulin is high. And number two is eating too frequently. So we're eating every few hours. And that constantly elevated insulin level makes your body become insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. And that, now we have a hormonally modified human being with high insulin levels. And all the after effects of that are what we're seeing in metabolic syndrome. So we have to change our diet to go back to eating only whole foods, no processed foods, no refined products whatsoever, no vegetable seed oils, no ready-made foods, only real food as you see in nature and you eat those, all of a sudden your insulin levels come down and you start losing weight, blood pressure comes down, triglycerides get better, your diabetes can be completely reversed and the risk of heart attack, stroke, and now even cancer, there's data to show, completely go down. 
So when you talk to patients, I mean, obviously, or talk to family, talk to anyone, and you tell them that, boy, that's a that's a daunting, daunting, trafficking, difficult way to get there. What are the first steps? The first step is dietary change. So I sit down with them and I tell them, look, you want to get better or you're going to keep coming to the doctor and you're still going to get medical problems and your bills are going to keep going higher and higher. You have to make a change today. And I explain to them how they got to where they are because of the diet that they've been eating and they got insulin resistance. And I tell them that first and foremost, you need to cut out all processed foods. That means nothing made from flour, nothing that is ready-made. And number two, you need to eat infrequently. You are not meant to eat every two hours. So my patients, when I'm finished with them, I make them eat preferably one or two meals a day only. And I show them how to do that, where they can randomly skip meals initially just to show that, look, nothing happened to you. You skipped a meal. Nothing bad happened. (laughs) Then eventually going to eating in a six-hour window and then eventually going to three days a week where they're only eating one meal a day. And when they do that, all of a sudden, they come in here, they rush through the door, they can't wait to talk to me. Is it dark? I feel so good. I've lost all this weight, which I couldn't have before, but my energy level has gone way up. I'm on less medications now. And uh, and th- th- that this is the breakthrough that we need to apply to all our patients across the board. Everybody needs to do this because we've been bamboozled by the food industry and our lifestyle. And what, the combination of these two has really destroyed our health. What about non-drug supplements, Dr. Jim Nottis? Can you talk about that a minute? Yeah, well, because the food that we're eating is caloric rich but nutrient poor. And already made foods are, are that way. And I, and I have a whole lecture to show how that, that happens. So our food is nutrient poor but caloric rich. So I do measure their levels. Um, I don't ran, tell people randomly to go home and start taking multiple vitamins because I don't think that's a good idea either. But if you are deficient in one particular vitamin or amino acid, then I do prescribe that. And the commonest one I'm noticing is vitamin D. Vitamin D deficiency is rampant, and many doctors think that this is not important, but actually it is extremely important because it's involved in over 300 metabolic processes in the body. So almost all my patients end up being on vitamin K2 and vitamin D3. These two are almost everybody. What was the first one? Omega-3. What was the first one before the D3? It's called vitamin K2. 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 Yeah. so what, what can you eat to increase vitamin D? So vitamin D is, is found in meats and fish. So a vegetarian can, can sometimes have difficulty in getting enough vitamin D. And the best way to actually get vitamin D is the sunshine. So I tell all my patients, oh, okay. 10 minutes of direct sunshine, preferably in the morning, you'll make plenty of vitamin D. Oh. And then the food, dark leafy vegetables, but also meats and vegetables, I mean, uh, meats and fish will have vitamin D in their diet. Vitamin K2 is found in green leafy vegetables. So you must eat some green leafy vegetables every day for vitamin K2 because vitamin K2 deficiency has been linked to calcification of non-osseous structures. What that means is the, the calcium is not where they should be because instead of being in the bones, the calcium ends up in your blood vessels. Yep, and that's that, that kind of takes us back to that calcium score 
Um, we should probably uh, discuss that because I know that's a that's a uh, test that you offer in your office, and it has a great scanning ability to to let people know you know what what they're in for in, well, in a sense. Dr. Mark, let me change gears a little bit and ask Dr. Gymnatis, what is the differences in people that are young that have heart attacks versus older that have heart attacks? The younger patients have less plaque overall than the older patients. So the older patients will have lots of plaque, lots of calcium buildup, lots of areas narrowing, but they fibrosed and they are stable. That's number one. So the difference is that the plaque burden in a younger patient is less, but it ruptures. And both of them rupture, but in a young person, when it ruptures, he hasn't had enough time to develop collaterals. Collaterals are side channels from the other arteries that build up like a web inside the heart muscle. So when an older person's artery shuts down, he has lots of collaterals, and although he sustains a heart attack, the amount of damage is usually much less than a young person. That is why a heart attack in a young person is so catastrophic. He goes into what is known as cardiogenic shock because he just doesn't have the collaterals. So we do not like to treat heart attacks in young people because the outcomes are usually very poor because they haven't had adequate collaterals over time. So, yes, there's a big difference between the two two groups of patients who have heart attacks. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, and then and that kind of leads uh, leads back to, to tell us about that calcium score. You mentioned it earlier in the talk today. So wherever there's plaque buildup, you're going to get calcium buildup as well. So the surrogate for plaque or atherosclerosis, as we call it, or atheroma, is coronary calcium, and it's not just coronary calcium; calcium in any artery. So the calcium that you see in an artery is an indication of plaque, and you can quantitate it. So when you do a scan, a calcium scan of the heart, you can actually get a score, and the score can go from zero to five, 6,000. And the more calcium, the more plaque you have. Mm-hmm. And the more plaque you have, the greater the chance that you're going to rupture one of those plaques. Right. So there's a direct correlation between the amount of calcium and your future event rates. Mm-hmm. Event rates means heart attacks and strokes. So that kind of begs one of our questions we wanted to make sure we got answered here before we run out of time is what should a person, uh, just a normal everyday person to ensure their good heart health as they age? Are there screenings? Um, I'm Obviously I'm hearing the diet, but are there are screenings at some point that they should be getting? And it sounds like you just told us about one very important one. Absolutely. I think that anybody over the age of 40 who has any risk factors, and I already told you, two-thirds of the people already have metabolic syndrome, Mm -hmm. they should get a coronary calcium score done, which is a CT scan with very little radiation. So it's a very Mm low-level radiation CT scan. And they should get at least a baseline done and know their score. Because you may still otherwise look healthy, but you have coronary calcium. If you, if I told you you had coronary calcium in your arteries, you are going to make lifestyle changes. But if you didn't do that and everything else looked okay or you plug in your risk in the Framingham risk score or any other type of risk profile, you're going to miss majority of the patients who are actually at risk. So anyone at risk, anyone who already has had a heart attack should know the calcium score. 
one, to establish that they have atherosclerosis, and two, you can track it over time. So if you have calcium, let's say, and two years later you repeat the score and your score did not go up, it stays the same, it tells me that my prevention program is working. On the other hand, if the calcium score has doubled or tripled, well, I'm missing something. So let's look deeper into it. Let's dig deeper. What am I missing? Am I missing gum disease? Am I missing your gut microbiome? Am I missing uh, sleep apnea? What am I missing here? And I chase that factor even further. So that's how it makes me very aggressive in chasing your your factors. How else? What's my yardstick to know that I'm making a dent in your atherosclerotic progression? This has been a a fantastic afternoon. Uh, Incredible. I know we're just touching the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the calcium. Uh, I want you to uh, please, please tell our listeners how they can get in touch with your office and promise that we'll have you back on uh, on another day and talk about some more just fantastic topics. Well, Doc, Larry, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, as you said, we did just really reach the tip of the iceberg. There's so much to talk about. Maybe we can have um, you on again for a full uh, show, Dr. Jim Nottis, if you'd be willing. Uh, I'll be very happy because, you know, for me, this is a passion because yes. I have found that I can getting to the root cause yep. is, yes. is, is the way to go. This so my office tremendous. is located right here in Orlando. I've, I'm on Mills Avenue at 1900 North Mills Avenue. And uh, I have a, 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 a terrific office here with everything in-house, including a blood lab and everything else and um, CT scanners, everything all one, all in one location. And my office number is 407-894-4880. And, um, you know, we, we're open. We, have, we actually participate in most insurances. Um, but, yes, we'll be open to new patients. And we're always happy to help our patients who want to help themselves. Okay, Dr. Gymnatis, this has been so informative and so educational for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today on Healthcare Now. And we hope to talk to you again very soon. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Larry, that was a great afternoon discussion with Dr. Jim Nottis. Really enjoyed it. One of the best. Yep. And so uh, remind our listeners they can hear this again. They can look down at any of their typical podcast platforms. Uh, this will uh, drop uh, on Tuesday. Yes. Uh, so we can get that on iHeart, on Apple, on Podbean. And, many and, others. and literally, this is something you can listen to over and over again. Over we'll have him back. We'll have him we back. Will, let's definitely have him back. But uh, enjoy being with you today, Dr. Mark. And As we'll always. see you next week. Absolutely. See you next week. You feel better now? We hope you do. Join us again next week for Healthcare Now. For a podcast of this program, go to TheAnswerOrlando.com.